Pastor Daniel, I'm one of the lead pastors here. Uh, how many of you had an opportunity to come to the Super Rally yesterday? A couple of you? Oh, awesome. So uh, there's two things that we do, and we combined them yesterday, which we've not done before. Uh, once a quarter or so, we do a rally, and we uh, honor people. Uh, we, what we're really looking to do is honor where we see Jesus really showing through individuals. And uh, we do some encouragement and some, uh, just, just a get together. It, it tends to be just a, a time where we're getting to celebrate a little bit. And then every month we do in very intentional uh, leadership development, group leader development, discipleship. And we do that usually over in the chapel once a month on a Sunday night. So we just put them all together. And yesterday we were talking about being unoffendable, choosing to be unoffendable. And you know, one of the things that we talked about on the, on the path to choosing to be unoffendable is uh, choosing to give others the benefit of the doubt, to, to believe the best of uh, others. And so I uh, highly encourage you to join us for our res rallies and uh, check out Supercharge when you get an opportunity. Uh, last Sunday, I was supposed to do child dedication. And about three days before that, I started to feel like I had a little bit of a flu or a little cold and it got a little bit worse and a little bit worse. And uh, I really wanted to do child dedication. So I was just gonna tough it out. And then you know, I remember the lesson of the last three years, which is like, if you're sick, don't go around people in public. So I stayed home, and then uh, Sunday I was like, I probably should take a little COVID test. And you know, I don't even take one of those home COVID tests, but they like get some samples or whatever, and you, you pour some liquid and you mix it and whatever, and you put some droppers down, and then you wait 15 minutes, and if there's two lines, then you're pregnant. <laughs> That's the wrong test. It's like that, but you wait 15 minutes, you have two lines, you have COVID. So we put little drops and like took three seconds and there was two lines. And I was like, ooh, that's probably not good. <clears throat> so I got COVID again, had it a couple years ago. Uh, and so for the past week and a half or so, I've just been at home drinking a whole bunch of water. But even after the symptoms go, there's this thing called COVID brain. You guys heard about this? You know, it's like there's this fogginess where you just can't, like, can't seem to concentrate. And so I find myself just doing like the simplest task and I'll just stop. I'm just kind of thinking about, I don't know what I'm thinking about. And I'll just be like, whoa, what am I doing here? Like 30 seconds just standing there. So like, I'm just, all I'm saying is if it's somewhere in the sermon, I just stop and I'm just staring off somewhere. I want you to give me the benefit of the doubt. So here's your application from yesterday. Okay, you're gonna, you're gonna think the best of me. You're gonna, you're gonna give me the benefit of the doubt and just assume that I'm hearing something very holy from the Lord, something just revolutionary. And it's not just me being a dork because I have COVID brain. Uh, we are starting a new series today. We finished the entire book of Ephesians uh, verse by verse, but it took us two years. And so we started a new book. Um, we started the book of John and we did that in the first week of December. So in the first, first week of December, we started in our Christmas series going through the first half of chapter one of the book of John, which is all about the incarnation. It's about all the mysteries of Jesus who he is and, and how uh, amazing of a miracle it was that God came to us and wrapped himself in flesh. And so we spent December sort of working on that. And we're going to go back to the book of John. And then on and off, we're just going to 
verse by verse, go through the book of John, probably take us another two or three years to get through that, um, because we'll take breaks and go study other things and and, and so on and so forth. The second half of chapter one of the book of John is instead of sort of the the lofty, amazing, uh, deep theologies about who Jesus is, uh, it's actually just very practical. So the second half of chapter one is the practical history of the beginning of Jesus' ministry here on earth. So Jesus' ministry lasted about three years. Uh, He was around 30 years old when he began his public ministry. And that starts where we're gonna pick up today, halfway through the book of uh, chapter one, in the book of John, and we're just gonna walk through that. Now here's the interesting thing about all three of the weeks that, that we'll spend in the end of this book, or this chapter, is that the beginning of Jesus' ministry is all about Jesus inviting people in to experience who he was. So I just want you to hear that because most of what religion will tell you about Christianity, and I'm choosing my words carefully, most of what religion will tell you about Christianity is about the things you need to do, the things you need to observe, the things you need to say, But you're not going to see that specifically in the Bible. It's not the main focal point of what Jesus is going to say. What he's going to say is, you need to come and experience. You need to come into relationship. You need to come and know me. And out of an outpouring of that, things will change. That's very different than a religion. Does this make sense? Okay, it's not just COVID brain. Good, good. Three of you understand me. We're doing great. All right. We're going to start in verse 19 today. It's uh, John chapter 1, verse 19. We're going to go all the way through uh, verse 34. Two sections of this uh, scripture that I'm going to split this up. The first part, 19 through 28, uh, we're going to talk about first. And, and kind of a main takeaway from that, and then a main takeaway from the next five verses. And I'm going to give you those right now, so that if I really go off on a squirrel trail, and you leave today, you're like, well, at least I learned these two things. And here they are. Verses 19 through 28, the main point is this. Do I really believe following Jesus will lead to my best life? Do I really believe that following Jesus will lead to my best life? That's a a big question that I want you to answer by the time you leave today. The second is this, verses 29 through 34. Our job as Christians, our job as disciples is to bring people to Jesus. God does the saving. Our job is to bring people to Jesus. God does the saving. Our story today, all of it, is about John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer. John the Baptizer, Jesus would call the greatest man ever born of a woman. Greater than Moses, greater than Abraham, greater than Elijah, greater than Joseph, greater than anyone else in the Bible, greater than than Paul, anyone else. Jesus would say, John the Baptizer is the greatest man ever born next to Jesus. And yet, we know very little about him. He was the only child of an aging priest named Zechariah. Uh, whose mother was actually already in a post-menopausal phase, so she shouldn't have been able to have babies. And she had John the Baptizer. He lived out in the wilderness in scrub country, basically out in the middle of nowhere. He subsisted off of locusts and honey, and he preached repentance because the kingdom was coming. A very interesting guy. He's going to accomplish uh, three things in this first passage that we're going to read. He's going to deny being the Christ. He's going to be questioned by the Pharisees, the religious elite of that time. He's going to identify himself 
as a herald that was predicted in the book of Isaiah to come before the king. And he's going to announce the presence of the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Let's pick it up in chapter 1, verse 19. It says this, And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? So, uh, John's been shaking stuff up. He's making a mess of things. The religious elite who have authority and power at that time, they have a lot of influence. They're known for that influence. They don't like what's happening. They got to see who this guy is. So they send out some people out to Bethany from Jerusalem to go find John and be like, who are you? What are you doing? Question him. Get some answers from this guy. Who is John? Who's John the baptizer? We actually know more about John from Luke than we do from the book of John. Luke 1, 13 through 17 tells us this about John the baptizer. But the angel said to him, this is his dad, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John and you will have, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be a great before the Lord and he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John's life and calling on his life was predestined before he was ever born. It was given to his father. John's role was to point to the coming Christ. He was a herald. His job, we don't have heralds anymore because we don't have a king here in, in the U.S., but a herald would go before the king when the king was going to enter into a town, and the herald would go in, and he would announce, be ready because the king is coming. Be prepared. Get your affairs in order. If, if things aren't ready, you're not, he's coming. It's a big deal. And so John the baptizer is preaching, the king is coming. The kingdom is coming. Be prepared. Verse 20, he answers uh, this question about himself. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. So he answers their question. Hey, I'm not, I'm not the Savior. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the guy. And so they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? Notice he says the prophet, capital P. I'll explain that in a minute. And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Verse 24, now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Essentially, the, the Pharisees send out these questioners and they give him four options. Here are the four options. You could either be... The Messiah that we've been waiting on now for over a millennia. In fact, there's been 400 years of silence since the book of Malachi was written down and they haven't heard from the Lord at all. Or maybe you're Elijah and I'll explain why they think he might be Elijah. There were some prophecies about Elijah in the Old Testament. Or maybe you're the prophet, which was a misunderstanding of some pre prophecies from the Old Testament. They thought that that there were some prophecies about the Messiah and some prophecies about the prophet. They were actually prophecies all about Jesus. But uh, they think there's this one prophet that might be coming. And so he's like, no, I'm not any of those three. You know what the fourth option was that they were giving him? You're a false teacher. <laughs> they don't actually say it. You're either these three things or you're a false teacher, so which is it? So he says, no, no, no. And they're like, well, it's only one option then. You must be a false teacher teaching heresy, which means we have to put you to death if you're a blasphemer. 
John answers their questions. He says, no, I'm not any of these three. And they say, who are you then? And then he gives them, well, a really confusing answer, right? He answers them by paraphrasing a prophecy from Isaiah. So are you the Christ? No. Are you Elijah? Now, why would they think he was Elijah? Because if you turn to the book of Malachi, there's a prophecy about someone coming before the the Messiah comes in the spirit of Elijah. So they think that he's actually going to be Elijah. And the reason there was this idea that maybe Elijah was come back is Elijah didn't die, right? He went up to heaven on a chariot. And so a lot of the religious elite during that time thought that when, before the Messiah came back, that God would actually send Elijah back down, maybe on a chariot. We're not sure. Maybe he upgraded his ride. It's not, we don't know. But he would come back and then the Messiah would come. So they're like, are you Elijah? No, I'm not. Are you the prophet? Why do they think he was the prophet? Because they, they, they thought there was, uh, they had misconstrued a lot of, of the, the messianic prophecies about Jesus. And they thought there was this one prophet that would come back. In fact, it was Jesus, and he's already said he's not Jesus. He said, no, I'm not that guy. And then he quotes or paraphrases Isaiah 40, 3 through 11, and says, I'm this voice in the wilderness trying to make a way. Here's the thing. Essentially, you should understand, the Pharisees and the religious elite at that time, if if there was anyone who should have been able to recognize Jesus, it was them because they memorized all the prophecies. All they did was study the prophecies. All they did was study scripture. All they were consumed with in terms of work was the temple and and things of God and things of the scriptures. So like if there was anybody that should recognize that Jesus was coming, it's them. So when he quotes Isaiah to them, they should have been like, wait a minute, because all they did was study this. And they'd been anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And you're going to see that they, they, they completely miss what he's talking about. John has essentially been out in the wilderness preaching that the Messiah is coming. He's doing exactly what scripture said he would do. And they're still going to miss it. Verse 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then, if you're not these, one of these three, why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. Why are you baptizing? Okay, um, here's what you need to know about baptism. It, it, it was, symbolically, it was different before Jesus. Baptism, all the way back then, is what you, one of the things that you would do as part of the ceremonial ritual, if you were a Gentile, if you were outside the Jewish faith, and you wanted to become a Jew, one of the things that you would do is you would be immersed in water and you'd be baptized. So it was a symbol that was used to be converted from outside Judaism to a Jew. What is their question? We have a bunch of questions about this. First of all, you're only baptizing Jews. They're already Jewish. Why would you put them in the water again? Okay, so one, first of all, we're confused. Second of all, by what authority are you doing this? You're not a Levite. You're not a priest. Uh, you're not a Pharisee. You're not one of us. You don't have any authority to do this. How, how come you're doing this? And also, why are you doing it? Because you're doing it wrong. John's going to give them another really confusing answer. Verse 26, John answered them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. All right, 
It reads like a very weird conversation. Let's be honest, if you were listening to it, it probably was a very weird conversation. His answers don't really seem very linear. They seem kind of confusing. But let me explain why. He's talking to people who should have been the foremost expert in the coming of Jesus. They should have known, they knew the prophecies, they knew the scripture, it should have been a simple thing. The fact that he's preaching repentance and he's preaching that the king is coming and he's, he's preaching these things and they, they have to send someone to ask him already means that they don't get it. And so his non-answers essentially is he's answering scripture to them and they're still not getting it. It's like, it, it, it's like describing a beautiful melody to someone who has been deaf since birth. How, how do they understand? It's like describing something, the taste of some unique flavor to someone who has, doesn't have the use of their taste buds. It's like explaining life to dead bones. And, and John essentially is saying, look, if you don't see it, I can't explain it. What I need you to do is come and see it. This is the gospel message. Not that we shouldn't be able to explain what's happening in the gospel, but fundamentally, it's not merely an explanation of it that matters. What it matters is that you come and taste of it. You must come and see it. You must come experience it. You've got to know Jesus for the gospel to be real. Come and see. And so what John essentially does in these answers is it's not about me, it's not about me, it's not about me, it's about him. And you need to see him. You need to recognize him. You need to understand who he is. Have you ever had an opportunity to, to talk to someone as when God's saving them, like when they're coming to faith? I don't know if you've ever done that, but it's, it's absolutely maybe one of, one of the most enriching, encouraging, rewarding experiences because you can see God doing this work in them, like saving them, changing them. And all of a sudden, they're, they're asking spiritual questions. And all of a sudden, they have these these convictions and these uh, questions and concerns and, and, and you see it bubbling up in them. And here's the, the arrogance of humanity is we think that we came up with those questions. You know, yeah, I just started investigating God. Oh, did you? No, God is saving that person. And so all of a sudden, the, a, a dead skeleton doesn't just get up and go, you know, I'm gonna investigate life. God is wooing that person. He's, he's taking a dead heart and, and he's making it alive. And in the process, you get to watch God at work. And it's like, oh, you're watching a miracle occur. Here's what I want you to see about John's life, though. Because all of, all of his questions point back to Jesus. They're trying to, he, he just keeps pointing at Jesus, like, hey, it's not about me. It's not about me. I said the main point of this passage right here is that do I really believe that following Jesus will lead to my best life? John the baptizer is a great man of God. In fact, Jesus is gonna say the greatest man ever born of a woman. Uh, he, he has, he's amassed a following at this point. He has disciples who are, who are following him directly. He has crowds of people that are following him out in the wilderness. He's, people are coming to him. Jews are coming to him who have already been, already been they're already Jews and, and repenting and being baptized. And he's essentially saying, listen, Abraham made this covenant with God and you, you are covered by this as someone of Israel, but your sin has separated you to such an extent. You need to repent of that sin. And he's baptizing them back into this Abrahamic covenant. And he's even saying, it's not gonna be enough. Like there's one coming who's gonna baptize with the Holy Spirit. It's not even enough. It's just, I'm just trying to make the way ready. And so with all this, this following and these disciples, he still lived his life in 
abject poverty. And now this is kind of his opportunity. The Pharisees have noticed him. Jerusalem has noticed him. It's his opportunity to finally, you know, make, make, get some recognition or, or, or maybe just some sort of support so he doesn't have to live in poverty in the desert. And he could have easily carved out a nice little, nice little teaching niche for himself with the Pharisees. He could have done okay. He could actually live in the house instead of having to wander the wilderness with camel hair clothing, which sounds really uncomfortable. He did none of those things. None of those things. When they come to ask him what he's about, all he can do is point to Jesus, point to Jesus, point to Jesus. Why did he choose this life? He didn't. He didn't. He's just being obedient. This is a question I had to ask myself. I'm reading John's story. Greatest man ever born of a woman. Lives in poverty. Gets no recognition. Ends up... Uh, living out in the desert, eating locusts and honey. Sounds like a horrible diet. You heard of the caveman diet? I mean, you ever tried the John the Baptizer diet? Crickets and honey? No? Nobody? No takers? Oh, is that for your vegan diet? Anyways. <laughs> and his life is going to end going to jail and being beheaded. That's his life. Here's my question for you. There's no question for me when I read this. Would that be enough for me? That was going to be my obituary. If God said, Daniel, I've got a plan for your life. I'm like, oh, Lord, what is it? Sit down. You're going to live in the desert. You're going to wear camel hair. You're going to be poor your whole life. You're going to be ostracized. You're going to eat crickets. You're going to put you in prison. And you're going to be beheaded. Would that be enough for me? Would that be enough for you? Man, it's a good thing God doesn't share his plans with us sometimes. Amen. Because I'm not sure if it would. I think a lot of times we don't see the plan that God has for our lives because we're not prepared to handle the plan that God has for our lives. Do I trust him? Do I trust him? How much of my life do I believe that God owns and rules versus how much I own and control? You see, you see the, the myth of that modern Christianity has perpetuated is this idea that your life is yours and you give a sliver of it to God's as tribute or tithe. The most of it's yours. And that the real discernment that has to go on in your life is determining how much of that little bit that you've decided to give to God is enough to give to God so that you'll be okay with God. Like, God, are we on good terms? I gave you 9%. Do I need to give you 11%? 11%, okay, I gave you 90 minutes on Sunday, God. Are we good now? Oh, wait, wait, you need 30 more minutes here and a work day once a month? All right. That's not in the Bible. It's all his. Do you, do you understand? It's all his. Every dollar in your bank account is his. Every breath in your lung is his. Every minute of every day that you have before the grave is his. It's all his. You don't give him the parts that you think he should control and hold back the parts that you want to control. That's not how it works. It's all his. And so if the plan for the greatest man ever born of a woman is to live a life of poverty in the wilderness, wearing camel's hair, eating crickets and honey, going to jail and being beheaded... That's okay, because you were his to begin with. 
but we don't look at our life that way. And it's, it's the danger of the prosperity gospel that is preached over and over again in, in American Christianity is this idea that the measuring stick of life is how much money you have, what kind of job you have, or how you feel about well, how much money you have and what kind of job you have. I talked to somebody after first service that said that and they've worked for their employer a long, long time. And for the past 10 years, they've been wanting this promotion. 10 years of just grinding and taking on extra tasks and all this stuff, trying to get extra recognition so they could get this promotion, so they could get this promotion, so they could get this promotion. And then just recently, over the course of the last four or five weeks, on Sunday sermons, kind of listening and thinking, going back to work, they finally go, I don't even know that I want a promotion. Like, why have I been working so hard for this? That's what I'm saying. Our priority is simply, we're gods. We give everything over. Hey, God, what do you want me to do? And if life is living in the wilderness and going to jail and dying a martyr, do I trust that that is the path to contentment and satisfaction and joy in this world? Because I only actually believe the parts of the Bible I live. And unfortunately for us, a lot of our life doesn't actually reflect that belief, is it enough? Let's keep going. Verse 29. So we're going to transition. Then we have this little interview from the Pharisees, and then we're going to go to the, the next day. Verse 29. The next day, he, this is John the baptizer, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's be honest, it would have been really hard to be one of John the baptizer's disciples because that dude is awkward. <laughs> you imagine he's walking down the street with his guys and he's like, hey, Bob, you know, how's it going? What's up, Josephus? Yeah, good, nice tunic. And then he's like, bold, the Lamb of God. I mean, he, John, he has no chill. Behold the Lamb of God. Okay, so it's a reference to Isaiah, that there will be this, this perfect Lamb that comes and takes on the iniquity of the world. But how many people are even saying stuff like that? He's just walking down the street, points to Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God. It's him. He's here. Listen to what he says, verse 30. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. If you know anything about this, first of all, this is Jesus' cousin, right? John the Baptizer's cousins with Jesus. And John was born first. So what does he mean he comes before me? I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the son of God. A couple of things. Number one, why is Jesus looking at his cousin and saying, I, don't, I didn't know who he was? He's not saying, I didn't know who he was. He grew up with Jesus. He's saying, I didn't know he was the Messiah. I didn't know he was the Lamb of God. I didn't know he was the Savior. How did he find out? We find out in Matthew 3. We see the actual recount. 
of, of this happening in Matthew 3, verse 16, it says this. And when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up out of the water and behold, the heavens were opened up to him and he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. John witnesses this. It has this revelation that all of the prep work that he's doing, all of this heralding that he's doing, the coming of the Messiah has been right there with him. He actually knew Jesus, and this is the Son of God. And he sees him in the street after this happens, and he's like, that's him. That's the Lamb. That's the Son of God. Our job is to bring people to Jesus, and God does the saving. Our job is to just bring people to Jesus and God does the saving. Now, I want you to think about how urgent John is. In, the, in, the, in the, just the little bits that we get to see of John the baptizer in his work, like he is bold and he is urgent and he had, there's angst and there's like, oh man, I've got to get ready because Jesus is coming, this is a huge deal. You know what's crazy? John couldn't save anyone. He even admits, I'm just baptizing them with water. I can't even, I can't even baptize them with the Holy Spirit. And yet, he, he still has this urgency that they would see Jesus. And you know what doesn't slow him down at all? Not even having all the answers. He doesn't have all the answers. There's a bunch of stuff he knows he can't do. There's a bunch of things he doesn't even have answers for. It doesn't, doesn't stop him from being urgent to live on mission for the gospel. You know, there's been this uh, debate in the church since the formation of the church. It's this idea, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, uh, between predestination and free will. And the, uh, the debate is that, you know, did God choose me or did I choose God? And the answer is yes. But but predestination, what it oftentimes what this doctrine does in certain groups of people is it says, listen, well, if God's going to already have decided before the foundation of the earth who he's going to save, then why do I need to make a big deal of it? Like, why should I, I go crazy and, 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 and wear this burden and this angst for others if God's already made the decision of who he's going to save and who he's not going to save? I don't know. Look at John. John had angst. John had urgency. John didn't even have all the answers. John didn't even know how to save people. Here's what he did know. Jesus is coming, man. And if I could just get you to recognize who Jesus is, he might save you. There's no part of the theology in the Bible that should cause us to be hard-hearted towards sinners coming to God. If nothing, it should motivate us all the more that if I could introduce you to Jesus, if I could just get you to get a glimpse of Jesus, he might do something and stir something in you. And I might actually get to see it. And it says all of heaven rejoices when someone comes to the Lord. So number one, didn't make John less urgent, made him more urgent. Number two, John didn't even know the gospel. He didn't even know all, the, he didn't have the end written yet. Like he's baptizing in water, knowing that baptizing them in the water doesn't actually save them and he's doing it anyways. Why? I don't have to know all the answers. I, I just need you to see Jesus. Like you could think about all the things that John didn't know and all the reasons that he had excuses for not sharing the gospel and not evangelizing and not doing the things that he did and he doesn't grab onto any of those excuses at all. You know what, I think about all the excuses that I have for not sharing the gospel in my everyday life. Like I have a lot of excuses. Like one of them is, it's awkward. It's awkward. I was talking to someone uh, today and they're like, yeah man, like how do you even just start those conversations? It's so weird. It's awkward, socially awkward. I could just use that as a good reason to stay silent. I live by a schedule. You know what? Talking to people about spiritual things really messes up my schedule because then they have questions and we have to talk longer. 
well, I might not have all the answers. Like if I start that conversation, we might lead down a path where then I, I'm going to feel stupid because I don't know how to answer a question. I got lots of reasons to not have those conversations. Number three, God does the saving. God does the saving. I want you to think about this for just a second. Do you realize that God saves his enemies? Do you realize that God has never saved a friend? He's only saved enemies. You, you know, if I was to stop for just a second and just think about this, it will overwhelm me. God saved me. He chose me and he saved me. I had a pastor who used to say all the time, we don't ever graduate from the gospel. We never grow past the gospel. There's nothing deeper than the gospel. Close your eyes for just a second. Close your eyes. If you're saved, if you're saved, I want you to just think about everything you've ever done, every wrong you've ever committed, in fact, every wrong you've ever thought, every disaster you've created, the evil that you've harbored, maybe that you would be ashamed if anyone even knew about, the selfishness that you've clung to. And listen to me, listen to me. God chose you. Hear me. He chose you. And he chased you down. And he loved you anyways because he saves his enemies. Don't get over it. Don't graduate from the gospel. <laughs> Stop believing you chose him. Don't be silly. Saying yes to Jesus when he was chasing you down is the easiest decision you've ever made. It's literally like saying, well, I chose the lottery. No, if you won the lottery, no one goes, nah, you know, I don't think I want the 2.1 billion. Jesus chased you down. Of course you said yes. Because he saves his enemies. And he chose you. And listen, if you were the only person on earth, he would have sent his son anyways to the cross to bear your iniquity because he chose you, because he loves you, because that's what he does. God does the saving. Number four, John's entire life was dedicated to pointing to Jesus. That's what his life was about. The greatest man ever born of a woman's life was dedicated to Harold. The king is coming. The king is coming. The king is coming. His whole life. And if that seems like a waste to you for the greatest man in history, I just want you to reorient your priorities and understand if that seems like a waste, you are being caught up in human thinking. You're being caught up in worldly thinking. You're being caught up in, in, in pressure and influence from this world. And you want to reset your mind to kingdom thinking. What greater thing could there possibly be for the greatest man on earth than to herald the king of kings and the Lord of lords? There's no greater honor. And you could look at this like it's silly, like we, like we wasted John the Baptizer's life. Like you ever drive by one of those little tax places in tax time and they have the little air blowers in the, in the little man who does this? 
right? And he's just always trying to get your attention, like, come get your taxes done, come get your taxes done. Like, John is literally just like, Jesus is here, Jesus is here, Jesus is here. And you may think, oh, what a waste of his life. No, you don't get it. You were created to worship God. You only exist to worship God. You're only here to worship God. So everything that you think that would lead you in your life to satisfaction and contentment and joy and peace, if it's not starting from this point of worshiping God, then it's wrong. And I love you enough to tell you, it's wrong. And you will not find contentment and satisfaction and joy at the end of that. If it doesn't start with this recognition that God loves me and he created me to worship him. John's whole life is dedicated just to pointing to Jesus. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He attracts disciples. He attracts crowds. He attracts followers. John is like the first Instagram influencer before Instagram. He doesn't use that to build a platform. He doesn't use that to get rich. He doesn't use that to get famous. He uses all of that to point to Jesus and go, get ready. The king is coming. Don't miss him. The king is coming. Don't waste your energy, your money, your time, your thought life on anything else than being ready because the king is coming. You don't want to miss him. What does your life point to? What does your life point to? About 10, 12 years ago, um, in my, in my tech business, I work with lots of technology individuals and uh, IT people at different companies and stuff. And I'd work with a guy who worked for a big medical firm. He was one of the IT directors. And I probably worked with him about, about three years. And uh, we were going to go to lunch one day. And so he goes to get in my car. And in the passenger seat is my Bible and some, some prep for a Sunday school class I was teaching. And so he has to move it. And he's like, what's this? And, I, and I'm like, oh, it's in my Bible and some, uh, some stuff for this class I'm teaching. I teach a Sunday school class. And he's like, huh. Man, I would have never thought you were a Christian. I'm like, what? It's like, yeah, wow. Uh, oh, he's like, take that in a good way, you know? And I was like, yeah, there's no way I can take that in a good way. <laughs> there's probably not anything you could have said to make me more ashamed of my life. So I'm, I'm, I'm known for being really confident in my job. I'm known for being very ethical and of high character. But my life doesn't point to Christ and I'm a failure because it's what I was designed to do. It's the only reason I'm even here. What does your life point to? What are you known for? What are people gonna say about you? What do they say about you now? Because the greatest man in the history of the earth, whole life was poured out so that he could point to Jesus. No greater honor, no greater privilege. What about you? People know you as a good neighbor because you mow your lawn, ethical guy, pretty moral, good for his word, that they know that you love Jesus. Every person 
in the history of this world worships something. You worship something. Your time, your money, your adoration. My question is just, what are you worshiping? What am I worshiping? What do people know about me? I mentioned there were two main takeaways today for the first section and one for the second section. Number one, do we really believe that following Jesus will lead us to our best life? And secondly, that our job is to bring people to Jesus because God does the saving. And here's the thing is that those two questions are practically linked because you can't bring people to Jesus to experience the relationship that Jesus has if you yourself don't actually believe that Jesus is the only path to satisfaction and contentment to the type of water that makes you never thirsty again. If you don't live a life like that, then it's going to be very difficult for you to invite people to, to see what that relationship looks like because it's come and see, not go and see. Yeah, I hear Jesus is pretty cool. I mean, I don't believe it, so you should go check him out. That's not an invitation. That's an admonition in your lack of faith. An invitation says, listen, in fact, this is what I told the guy who said, I don't know how to start these conversations at work. I said, you don't start conversations at work about Jesus about other people. You just go, this is what Jesus is doing for me. This is what God's doing in my life. This is where I have conviction right now. This is the anxiety that I'm struggling with that God's dealing with. Here's how I'm serving God. Here's how I'm, I'm struggling with the Lord. You talk about what God's doing in your life in front of other people and watch them open up to you. But it's got to be real for you because out of the outpouring of your heart is what other people end up getting to see. So what about you? Let me tell you what has perpetuated American evangelicalism for the past hundred years or so. It's this idea that you get to segment your life into sacred and secular buckets. And you get to determine which parts are sacred and are, are for God to rule and which parts are secular, which is the ones that God doesn't really care about. And so he's let you take control of those. And so what I'll do is I'll, I'll give God 90 minutes on Sunday morning and, and I'll definitely turn the switch on whenever I'm around other people from church. Cause I mean, you know, I don't want them to think I'm a sinner or something. But the rest of the time, God doesn't really care, so he's gonna leave that up to me and I'm gonna make the best decisions that I can. That's not how it works. It's all his, every bit of it. And if there's an area of your life that you've decided that you need to control, that you need to make priorities for because God doesn't care as much about that, I have news for you that is rebellion to God. It's an area where you have refused to surrender something to the Lord and to his lordship so that he can actually dictate what that looks like and where it should go and what you should do with it and what his kingship over it would look like. And you'll go from church to church to church of people that have decided to give some percentile of their life to the Lord so that they can control the rest because you and I still think we have a better plan than God does. You don't. You don't have a better plan. I've never had a better plan than God. Not one time, not for five minutes, not for 30 seconds. I've just had a lot of pride. We're gonna sing a song today. Our elders and our prayer team are gonna be up here to pray for you. I will pray about anything for you. I mean, I will pray over healing of serious, like you're on your deathbed stuff and I will pray for your sick dog. I don't care. 
we wanna pray for you because we love you. And here's what I'd like you to consider as you sing. Is there an area of my life, Lord, that I refuse to give you kingship over? Because I think I have a better plan than you do. And does my life point to me being competent or does it point to you? This is a question to ask. If you don't know the Lord and today you want to surrender your life to the Lord, all of it, we'd love to talk to you and talk to you about what next steps look like. If you feel like you need to come to the altar to pray, to just repent and give God an area of your life that you've held back in rebellion from him, I invite you to do that. And if you just need someone to talk to, we'll be here. You move as the Lord leads you. We love you.